0: Our guest speaker for today is uh, Dr. Klein Snodgrass. Um, He uh, is a retired professor of New Testament from North Park Theological Seminary in Chicago, our denominational seminary. Uh, He taught there for over 41 years. Uh, He and his wife, Phyllis, Phyllis is with him today. They they live in Chicago, but originally he is from eastern Tennessee. Uh, While I was at North Park, I had the opportunity to take several classes from him, and I was always challenged and and inspired and encouraged in my, my love for Scripture and my love for Jesus Christ. And I'm going to invite Klein to come now and um, and speak to us. Let's welcome Klein. Services today. I finally get to be at Salina Covenant. I've uh, heard about this church for at least 35 years or so, and many of the people who have served on your staff during those years are good friends. So I've always heard about it, and and, uh, now I'm privileged to be with you. I thank you for that. You are in the middle of a series focusing on being ready to defend your faith. And my task today is to focus on Scripture in that regard. How will you defend the faith with Scripture? How will you be ready with Scripture? How will you defend Scripture? Well, I'd like to read a text to you that people don't usually read in that regard, but I think is important. It's the passage from John 6 uh, where Jesus... Uh, has been teaching in the synagogue, and this is kind of the conclusion was what he says at that event and what happens with it. Read with me. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, This is a hard saying. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words... I have spoken to you. They are full of spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. How are you going to defend Scripture? I suggest you do what Martin Luther did. He said you defend Scripture the way you defend a lion. Let it out of its cage. Scripture will take care of itself. You have nothing else to give people if you're thinking about defending the faith than Scripture. But, this is an old book, right? And we live in a modern world. There's so many advances from science. Does the Bible still have something to say to us in the modern world? And you know what? There's some tough stuff in it. Some of it that's not Christian. My church a few months ago was reading through the Old Testament together. One of my friends came to me and said, we've got to talk. As I'm reading the Old Testament, I'm having a lot of problems. I looked at him and I said, You should. Come back to that a bit later. But still, I would say to you that you need to draw the sustenance for your life from this ancient book. This is what you need. You think about those. those passages we read from John 6, where Jesus spoke of feeding on this bread, His character, on His words being full of spirit and life, or better, I think, of life-giving spirit. And Peter saying, Lord, to whom are we going to go? Where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life, the words we need. You'll remember Deuteronomy saying, humans don't live by bread alone. They live from every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This is what you need for your sustenance. And that's why I'd say, eat this book. It's actually the title that Eugene Peterson uses for his book on the character of Scripture. But he's right. Eat this book. It's a metaphor, of course, a figure of speech to say, you need to invest your life in here. You need to know that you're taking in what you need for your life when you encounter this book. Scripture often uses that kind of imagery. Taste and see that the Lord is good. So, eat this book. Why? Well, I'd say to you, first of all, that Scripture answers life's ultimate questions. It is the source, pattern, pattern and power of truth. The really important questions like, are we a creation or an accident? Now, questions like, are we alone? There's somebody with us. Is God with us? Is there a god? Does god care? Are other people like us? How are we supposed to live? How are we supposed to live in relation to god and to other people? Were we will be held responsible for what we do. Do we matter? Is there any hope? And if you're looking for answers to those kinds of questions, apart from Scripture, you don't have an answer. Science is great, they made amazing strides, as you well know. Science is very good at telling you the how of things, but it doesn't have a word to say about the why or even the limits. Of science, a year ago in North Park we had a symposium on science and religion. Brought in all these scientists and theologians to discuss for two days how the two relate. It was interesting to listen to these people talk about reading God's two books: the book of nature and the book of scripture. Yeah, yeah, that's what we should be doing. But science can help us with the how, but it has no word to say about the why. Hollywood doesn't have the answer. doesn't have any answers. Wall Street doesn't have the answers. Washington doesn't have the answers. Interesting phenomenon just happened. When I said that in the second service, everybody laughed. You all didn't move. (laughs) Come on. Washington does not have the answers. And nor does anybody else. But Scripture does. And what does it do? Let me ask you again even another question. Why be ethical? Why be moral? Why should you do what's right? Unless there's the kind of God revealed in Scripture, I have no reason to say why you should. But scripture comes along and it says the answers are found in terms of the loving, merciful God of compassion revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. And there you find a God who seeks us, gives us what we need for life, gives us value and good hope. And good work to do. The God who gives us what we need. Truth. Justice. Mercy. Love. Compassion. Hope. How do you deal with the tragedies the world encountered this past few weeks? How do you deal with the evil that happened in Las Vegas? Where are you going to find the pattern for lament? To grieve? Where are you going to find the description of sin? Where are you going to find the mercy and compassion and hope that we need to go forward in in such a context? Where are we going to find how we deal with our own self-centered egos. The source of sin. Scripture is the source of truth. But it's also the pattern of truth. It gives us examples. It says, here, look at this godly life. Here are models and mentors that you can learn from and Live your life in a similar way. And you say, oh, that's great. But there's another piece of this pattern. Scripture also gives you the pattern of untruth. It shows you what untruth looks like. And that's part of the reason why my friend came to me and said, I'm having problems. Because a good deal of the text, especially in the Old Testament, is not trying to tell you how life is supposed to be. It's telling you how it was and is, and you should be different. You take, for example, good chunks of the Old Testament, like the book of Judges, or the book of Second Samuel, which tells you about David's affair with Bathsheba, This tawdry history that flows out of that in which one of his sons rapes his half-sister and her brother kills the guy who did it and then revolts against David and the whole thing is a downward spiral. And the narrator never stops and says to you, oh, this is evil narrator just assumes you're smart enough to read. No, this is not what God intends. He's telling you about the failure of God's people. Much of Scripture is not about how life should be. You're not supposed to read that text and, and think, oh, go and do likewise, obviously. No, you're supposed to say, my goodness, they blew it bad. The Scripture gives us both the pattern of truth and the pattern of untruth. So you're going to have to read with discernment and read carefully. Do not think I'm suggesting there's a great difference between the Old Testament and the New. The Old Testament is just doing some different kinds of things. Do not think I'm suggesting there's a a gulf between Old Testament and New. No, all of Scripture is for our learning. All Scripture is is from the Spirit of God. And but it's all different. It's like a a patchwork quilt. It's variegated. And so you're not going to read it all the same way. You're going to be sensitive enough to say, oh, this is what this text is doing. So with this wonderful text, we find something else. We find that the text, as the early covenanters said, is An encounter with the power of God. Scripture is the source and pattern of truth, but it's also the power of truth. It is a catalyst that brings truth into being. In that altar where we meet God, here God is, by His Spirit, is addressing us as we read. Challenging us, confronting us, comforting us, transforming us, shaping us all along the way the power of truth that puts things in, into being. And this is why you will find that the covenant insists on the authority and centrality of Scripture, as they should. And early on they ask with regard to any claim or doctrine, if you're going to say, well this is true, they say, where is it written? They want to know What's the scriptural evidence for what you're saying? And if you don't have scriptural evidence for it, then I'm going to look at it differently. And when they first were establishing the covenant, they wrote their constitution. The first thing, of course, they wrote is their name. This is what we're going to call ourselves. And the second thing they wrote was, we confess the Scripture is the only perfect rule for faith, doctrine, and conduct. And that was it. They didn't confess anything else. It's just the Scripture. They felt, okay, if we, people realize this is a foundation, that's it. And when they later, a few years ago now, were writing covenant affirmations, four times they repeated that statement. The Scripture is the only perfect rule for faith, doctrine and conduct. Understand what they're saying. With rule they were saying guide. This is the guide for what you need for faith, doctrine, and conduct. How you going to live what you're going to believe? Scripture is the guide for it. With perfect they meant complete, in the sense that you don't need to go somewhere else and find another source. But what God is communicating, what you need to know for foundation is here. And by saying only, they were saying uh, it's unique. It's the only one that fits in this category. Uh, and in that regard, if we got the right what up, uh, there we go. Scripture is the norming norm. It's the thing that regulates how you judge other things. If you think about, say, some high-tech equipment that you're going to put on a factory floor... When you install the thing, it has to be set. It has to be regulated. And what do you use to regulate it? There's the thing that sets the standard. Well, Scripture is that thing that sets the standard. It is that norming norm by which all else is assessed and put in place. So Scripture is the source, pattern, and power of truth. There's another thing that I have to say about Scripture, and this is... Something has kind of taken over my life, in in one sense, my whole career. I didn't realize it uh, in the early years so much. But especially in the last couple of uh, decades, I have been taken over by the subject of identity, Christian identity. And so Scripture tells us who we are and should be. It's about identity formation. Who God Says You Are. I have a book coming out in January with that title, Who God Says You Are. There are nine things, I think, that make up a person's identity. Your identity. And Scripture addresses all nine of them in detail, as you might expect. It tells us who we are, where we belong, how we fit in God's story. God has this large narrative story, and God wants us to be part of. it. How do you fit in there? And where is this story going to take us? It does that by allowing us to decipher life in the mirror of the text. That's what we do with Scripture. It becomes like a mirror that we, uh, that we can decipher life and say, Oh, well, that's what I should be understanding. This is what I should be doing, and so forth. And it does that in particular... By showing us what a human is supposed to be in the face of Jesus Christ. And at the same time shows us who God is in that same face. It gives us value and it gives us good work to do. On the first page of most Bibles we're told humans are created in the image of God. You are created in the image of God. But interestingly, when you get to the New Testament... When the focus is on the the image of God, it's primarily on Jesus Christ, who is ultimately and uniquely image of God. Because there you see, oh, that's what the human character is supposed to be. And that's how we understand who God is. In addition, Scripture shows us sin, shows us evil. Especially Paul, if you read his letters, nowhere more than in Romans, you get this picture of sin and you go, not this guy have so much insight. 2,000 years ago, Romans 1, Romans 7, both talking about the fracture that goes on in people's lives because of sin. The very thing I want to do, I don't do. We all know this fracture. Fracture. Sin is fractured by its very nature. How would Paul get that insight? Yes, he had a good education, I'm sure, but other people were educated. But Paul encountered the risen Christ who literally knocked him down, confronted him in his erroneous ways, transformed his life, Injected him into God's story and gave him good work to do. And Paul, in encountering his churches, develops this theology of what sin is. Scripture also gives us a vision of how we should live. Nowhere more than in the Sermon on the Mount. Scripture gives us the only vision worth having. You look at the Sermon on the Mount, and sometimes people want to run from it. They say, oh it's, oh, it's too hard. Oh, it's only there to convict you of sin. No, it's not. It's there to tell you how you're supposed to live. And both Matthew and Jesus think, yeah, that, that's what you should do. You did notice this is the first thing that Matthew put the Jesus' teaching. Like, if you get this, you'll understand who he is. And I'd like for you to think for me a minute. We'll just kind of go through the... Uh, early part of the summer on the Mount, chapter 5 and part of 6. How would you like to live in a community where nobody murdered anybody? And not only that, did everybody control their anger and didn't even get angry with each other? How would you like to live in a community where men did not commit adultery? And they did not objectify women and view them merely as sexual objects. And women didn't men either. How would you like to live in a community where people told the truth and they didn't have to swear so you'd know they were telling the truth. They just told the truth. How would you like to live in a community where people did not retaliate when done wrong? in a community where people love their enemies? How would you like to live in a community where people did not re- use religion for show? That's the kind of community that Jesus is calling forth. That's the vision Scripture gives. And it's the kind of community Salina Covenant needs to be and the kind of person you need to be. Here's a vision tells us who we are and where we belong. Scripture also gives you the language of protest. All of us like to protest, right? And you should be protesting against a lot of stuff. And Scripture directs you as to what you should protest against. It gives you models and mentors for, for protesting while still loving. It also gives you the language of freedom. Freedom. The gospel is a gospel of freedom. This is good stuff. So I have to ask, what script are you following? Everybody follows a script. You know, the script that tells us who we should be, what we should wear, what we should do, what we should find entertaining. How many of you are under 20? Stick your hand up. No lying on this one. (laughs) Under 25. i want to see a few more. Who's telling you what you should be and who you should act like? What script are you following? Where'd you get your script? You know, that thing that's written, you know, if it were a play, here would be the written script. You say this, you do this. Where'd you get your script? Do you trust the people that gave it to you? And it wouldn't it be better if you had a scripture that your God gave you so you knew who you were and knew where you were going. So I say to you, draw your nourishment from this book, but you do it carefully. And I have to tell you, it's hard to be biblical. Come on, it isn't be honest. There's some tough stuff there. And it covers, what, well, a little over, uh, at least over 1,200, 1, years? And it gives you things you think, well, how do these two things go together? A long time ago, I wrote a book entitled Between Two Truths. Because Scripture was always giving me two things I had to deal with, it, at least two, maybe more, on the same subject. How do you deal with the sovereignty of God and the freedom of humanity or the humanity of Christ and the divinity of Christ or freedom and responsibility, grace and law, whatever I was handled this. So don't think this is going to be an easy task. But here's your nourishment. But you need to let it be an ancient book. It wasn't written today. And if you do not deal with with the fact that it's an ancient book to a different culture in a different place, you will misread it. Guaranteed. So let it be what it is. Know that it is not to you. We all read self-centeredly often, don't we? Everything oh, this is to me. No, you're reading somebody else's mail. Literally, with Paul's letters and the Johannine letters, James and so forth, but with all of it. It was written to somebody else, but it was written for you and about you because of the grace of God. So how do you discern, if it was written to somebody else, how do we appropriate what is for us and about us? You will need to be aware that there is a trajectory in Scripture. There's a movement. You don't get everything in Genesis. And as things happen, some things change down the way. Most obvious in sacrifice. You can still learn from the material on sacrifice, but we don't do sacrifices because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That was the sacrifice that ended sacrifice. Sacrifice. So be careful how you read. Pay attention to what kind of literature you're reading. Is it a narrative? A parable? A proverb? And remember, a proverb is usually generally true. may not be true all the time. And you get proverbs back to back informing you of that. Treat a fool according to his folly. Don't treat a fool according to his folly. In other words... Better be careful how you're dealing with fools. <laughs> oh, boy. Stop asking about the meaning of a text and ask about its function. You know, if you ask about the meaning of a text, you know, the meaning can be over here somewhere. But if you ask about the function of the text, you're asking, what's this text doing? And what's it trying to get me to do? Because the text is, remember as Hebrews puts it, alive and active. That's a figure of speech. But a way to say this thing is so life-transforming, it's like a double-edged sword that cuts through things that aren't supposed to be separated, soul and spirit, bone and marrow. And it gets in and judges your thoughts and your actions. Ask what this text is trying to get you to do. The Covenant has a resource paper done a few years ago, and it's very good. And I confess, I was involved in helping write it. It's still very good. It's online on the Covenant website under resources they have. If you uh, if you can't find it easily, ask one of the people on staff. You need to pay attention to this because. It says this is the way the covenant reads Scripture. And I would go so far as to say it's the way anybody should read Scripture. And you look at the things that they have said. This is what you should do reading Scripture. You read faithfully. You don't dip into it every now and then. You are faithfully in contact with the Scripture. You read communally. You don't read by yourself. You bring your reading with other people. Because we need each other to read. People who are scholars need people who aren't scholars to help them see the text. Believe me, I know the scholars. We need people from different perspectives that help us understand things that we would not otherwise understand. We read rigorously. Knowing this is—it's not easy to be biblical. So we're going to have to pay close attention and use any resource that's valid that we can get our hands on. But we're going to read and pay real attention and not just let it pass by. We're going to read charitably with people who disagree with us. We're going to read holistically across the whole of the text because we need it all, even though it's quite different in various places. And uh, it is not all trying to do the same thing. And we will read, as part of this whole context of reading faithfully, communally, and so forth, we will read self-aware. We will know who we are coming to the text. Because when you come to the text, you bring a bunch of things. And maybe some of them, the text is going to tell you, you need to drop that one. So you need to be self-aware. And seeking God's intent. What's God trying to get you to understand and do because of the text that you're reading? So I say to you, Christians must be people of the book. Got to be people of the book. Keep asking, where is it written? And don't tell me you believe in the authority and centrality of Scripture. Show me you do. By the way you give attention to it. And by the way it transforms your existence. Because that's what it's supposed to do. When your life isn't changed by the encountering Scripture. One of the things that I find really uh, surprising and intriguing uh, is part of Deuteronomy. You remember Deuteronomy? The people were told to tie the law on their head and on their arm. And uh, in the neighborhood in Chicago where I live, there are a number of Orthodox Jews. And they and Orthodox Jews around the world will still tie Scripture on their head and their arms. They have a little black box, about this big, with a few Scripture verses in it, and long leather straps. And there's a very precise way in which you're to do it, but you tie that on your head, and you wrap it and the straps are around your left arm, close to your heart, so the Scripture is there on your arm and on your head. It's a way of saying Scripture is supposed to guide your thoughts and where you're headed and what you do. Now, can Christians have any less focus? I don't want you to tie little leather boxes on your head or your arm. But I do want Scripture dominating your thinking and your action. Because that's what it means to be people of the book. Read it. Read it faithfully. Read it communally. Read it getting all the help you can get. But let it out of its cage. It will take care of itself.